Concluding my look through Amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. A mini-project designed to cover all of Stan Lee's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. For those that are new, previous episodes in this series are number 38, number 40, number 42, number 44, 46, 49, 52, 93, 94... 108, 113, 118, 125, 131, 138, 142, 146 and 148. Covering Amazing Fantasy 15 through to Amazing Spider-Man 105. And so, this is it. The end of Stanley's epic run on arguably the most popular and most important character he co-created. Will he go out with a bang, an epoch-making conclusion to his run, or will it be business as usual? Let's jump in and find out. Amazing Spider-Man 105 boasts a cover by John Romita and Frank Giacoya. Giacoya, I'll get that right one day. On which Spider-Man is seen, sans mask, as numerous thugs point at him. He's represented as a figure on Smythe's view screen, which is in full colour. It's an intriguing cover and no mistake. Revealed the face of Peter Parker, the cover screams. How does our hero get out of this? Squash goes the spider picks up where we left off with a great splash page. Spider-Man pulls his mask into place, his spider sense finally warning him that shit's going down. In addition to Stan, we see John Romita is back on pencils with Gaia Koya on inks. Spidey realises that the devices he's seen popping up on rooftops across the city are the property of the NYCPD, and he covers the camera up with his webbing. As usual, Ramita's depiction of New York makes you believe you're really there. Spidey's bricking it. What is the purpose of these cameras? Have they been tracking him? Did they, whoever they may be, see his face? The answer to that is yes, Professor Smythe saw his face. And despite knowing Peter Parker, having met him a few times back in issues 25 and 28, Smythe completely fails to recognise him. In correspondence to this show, Oliver Villar mentioned that Stan may not remember, as Steve Ditko plotted those issues, but I'm struggling to buy that. Stan still scripted them, allegedly, and that doesn't work for me as a no-prize, as it doesn't explain why Smythe doesn't recognise Peter in story. Of course, this is a far more deranged Smythe than before, so maybe he simply forgot. In Marvel time, it has been around four years, and Peter has changed quite a bit since he last saw him. Anyway, Spidey concocts a plan and swings over to Kurt Connor's place. Okay, let's pause for a second. Does Kurt have a place in the city or not? He lives in Florida, but must have an apartment in New York, as his family stayed in it back in issue 76. Yet in issue 101, he has a place in the Hamptons. Being a scientist apparently pays exceptionally well. Spider-Man asks Kurt if he can work there for a bit, and Kurt says, sure man, and leaves him to it, no questions asked. Peter then gets to work, making a mould of his face, like they do in special effects labs, and deftly paints on some eyebrows, presumably so he looks like a Kardashian. Job done, Spidey says, thanks, I left everything as I found it. Too bad, replies Connors, I was hoping you'd tidy up. (laughs) That was quite fun, well done Kurt, yes. Now, as much as I like Gil Kane, it's good to have Ramita back. 
There's no frills with Ramita, just good, clear storytelling. The progression of panels as Peter makes the mask shows exactly what's going on, and the next few pages are equally exemplary. First, we start by the bugle, where Jonah's robot-controlling device sparks and smokes before shutting down completely. A concerned Robbie enters and tells Jonah that the police scanners have been installed around the city and they've had their master control unit stolen. Anyone can watch anyone else. This massive breach of privacy isn't remarked upon by Jonah, weirdly, given what happens next, but he does tell Robbie to go write the story up. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of story to write up, but what do I know? Elsewhere, Smythe chuckles. He cares not for Jonah, but he does care about the top four gang leaders in New York who are in the next room. The top four gang leaders in New York. Would the kingpin not have anything to say about this? These four nomarchs are here to see the unlimited access to the CCTV around New York that Smythe is promising them. Smythe tells them, planning a robbery? I can tell you where the cops are. Robbing an armoured car? I can tell you the best place to hit it. The four top gang leaders in New York seem impressed with Smythe and his mastery of the police's control unit, but aren't impressed when Smythe zeroes in on Spider-Man, who takes his face off to reveal a mask beneath a mask. The thugs think Spider-Man may be a problem. Smythe says he'll take care of it, and reveals his piece de resistance, the new Spider-Slayer. Spider-Man is done for. You know, I'm not really sure, but I don't think Stan's thinking this plot through. He's completely changed Smythe's personality, turning him into a thief and a liar instead of the misguided but intelligent fool he was originally. Spider-Man has no idea that anyone saw him without his mask, nor does he have any idea anyone saw his last desperate gamble to have a fake mask on top of his Spider-Man mask to show that people who were watching, if any were, that the face they saw was not real. That seems a bit convoluted to me, but whatever. I mean, that said, if anyone did see him, the odds of them recognising him are... Well, don't tell me the odds, but basically we've backpedalled on a cliffhanger ending that wasn't that good to start with. Third, once again, Jonah is culpable in an attack on an innocent man, which must be against the law, even if he's been used as a dupe by Smythe. What happens next is even dafter. Jonah is leading a demonstration. All of a sudden, Jonah has a bug up his ass about the police's surveillance scanners, and he's leading a protest. Would did he find all these people so quickly? Who knocked up all their placards? Did no one get wind of this plan of the police before it was implemented? Don't they have to announce these things? Why does none of this add up? Still, it shows Stan's finger being on the pulse, and this time it's a protest about privacy. Still a hot-button topic today. It also gives Peter a warm glow to see Jonah and Randy Robertson marching side by side. With all that out of the way, Peter heads for home to get ready for his date with Gwen. Harry is there and still in a low-key mood after recent events. He's not at his best and still upset about Mary Jane. Peter tells Harry that he should play the field a bit, beat MJ her own game. Speaking of Mary Jane, she knocks at the front door and she looks stunning in... Bizarre boots that wrap rope-like around her calves, a tiny green mini-dress with plunging neckline and a minimal skirt, all of which highlight her green eyes and red hair. 
Rather insensitively, she's brought tons of friends with her as well as beer and pizza in an effort to cheer Harry up. This is some remarkable backstory right here. For one, I've speculated before that Marie Jane clearly has a life away from Peter and co, and this gives me even more ammo in that regard. Who are these people? How does MJ know them? Does Harry know them? Peter doesn't greet any of them with any familiarity, suggesting he hasn't got a clue who they are. Two, it's a nicely diverse bunch, and we're definitely entered the 70s with the her and the clothes. Are these MJ's drama chums? MJ never concerns herself with if Harry wants a large gathering at the moment, and in true Murray Jane fashion she seems to be avoiding being alone with Harry, as she would have to answer some awkward questions. MJ also hits on Peter, again. Now about you and me cutting out and... She says, letting the question hang there. Whatever can she be suggesting? Still, Peter demures, telling MJ he has a date with Gwen. MJ accuses Peter of having lost a bet, but Peter isn't biting. He tells her to have fun and leaves, all the time wishing Harry could get a decent girl who'd stop hitting on him. Peter dons a tan suit and walks over to Gwen's. Mary Jane looks stunning. Gwen is casually cool in a red and black striped hot pants jacket ensemble, black open-necked shirt, red boots and a white trilby. I'm sorry, MJ. Gwen wins this one. Peter describes her as looking voomy, whatever the hell voomy means. Gwen wants to nip over and see Flash, a suggestion which makes Peter sulk. I'm actually on Peter's side here. Nevertheless, Gwen's concern for Flash make Peter feel bad, so they compromise and say they'll drop by on their way to the cinema. It's really quite sad when Gwen tells Peter, we'll drop by and see a friend. We've a whole lifetime together, given what happens in the future. They visit Flash, but he's real ornery. So they leave and continue their night, which consists of a flick, a drink and a meal, and then Peter and Gwen spending the evening together, from which we avert our eyes. It isn't indicated if they do go and see I Am Curious Yellow or Love Story, which were Gwen's suggestions last time, or any other film that was out at this time in 1971. But given Gwen's taste, I'm betting on the last picture show. Given recent events, Peter probably poo-pooed lust for a vampire. After leaving Gwen, he decides to check in on Flash for a man-to-man talk. He changes to Spider-Man, leaves his suit webbed up, remember this for later, and swings over to Flash's apartment. Okay, so how exactly was Peter to have a man-to-man conversation with Flash if he left his civvies behind? Fortunately, Peter never has to confront that problem, as he's attacked by Smythe and the Spider Slayer. However, this time victory is assured, as Smythe is in the Spider Slayer, and no longer relying on controlling it from afar. Again, doesn't this contradict the Smythe from a few issues ago, who went to great lengths to cover his involvement with these crimes? And this is the crux of the problem. There's a lot to like here. Gwen and Peter, Flash's problems, MJ being a dick to Harry, all of that is excellent. But the Spider-Man stuff hasn't been thought through at all. Stan gives us a massive cop-out with regards to Cliffhanger, and doesn't even really care to wrap it up properly. Peter just takes it as read his silly gambles worked. Smythe has had a personality alteration, becoming a feckless and curless criminal whose motivations vary wildly from a sudden interest in making money but from behind the scenes to wanting to make a big show of killing Spider-Man. It makes no sense. 
John Romita's art is fantastic. The last few pages where he opens them up with bigger panels to emphasise Spidey's moves and the size of the new Slayer are stunning. Which is fortunate, as it's the art and the subplots that keep this story afloat. Issue 107's cover has Spider-Man gift-wrapped in metal wire by the Spider-Slayer. A smythe looks on through a window proclaiming, I've got you at last! In this great landmark issue, you'll thrill to Spidey's greatest triumph, though it doesn't look like it right now. Spoilers. This is not Spidey's greatest triumph. The same creative team as last issue produced Spidey Smashes Through, a lazy and thoroughly unimaginative title given how prosaic Stan normally is. After taking us through his last battles with Spidey, issues 25 and 58 for those keeping track, Smythe cackles like a lame serial villain, spouting cliches like, I've beaten you at last, and no stupid costume freak is a match for Professor Smythe. He then takes off, taking the drugged and bound Spider-Man with him to show off his spoils to the four top gang leaders in New York. Impressed by what they see, they defer to Smythe. Smythe is on full gloat mode. With Spider-Man caught and their ability to monitor the police, they can't lose. It's the next day at ESU, presumably the end of classes, meaning Peter has been missing all day. Gwen is chatting to Harry when Randy and Josh show today's paper with the demonstration against the Big Brother cameras splashed all over the front page. Josh looks more like the Josh we remember here, back to wearing the round, sensitive poet specs, but looking like he's put on a bit of weight. Gwen notes that the photo wasn't taken by Peter, and she starts to fret, fearing MJ may have got her claws into him. Gwen is not wearing her traditional headband, but a strange black ribbon around her head. She also seems to have stolen MJ's bizarre boots, those same ones that wrap rope-like around your calves. Flash is waiting for her as she leaves ESU. He wants to apologise for being a dick last night and confesses he wants to be more than a friend. Gwen sensitively cuts him off before he can say something he can't take back and she makes it clear that she is in love with Peter and he with her and that this is the real deal. But she is a friend and if she or Peter can help, they will. Flash only wishes that they could. This is actually a lovely scene. This is a side to Flash we've never seen before, and although one could argue that him hitting on his friend's girlfriend is a little underhanded, Gwen handles it perfectly. It's also showing how much Flash has changed since the early days. That he would even allow Peter to help shows great growth, and his time in the army of really matured Flash. Gwen's desire to help shows her curring and sensitive side, and her ability to cut Flash off from telling her something she's clearly aware of, but knows it's better not to hear, is masterfully done. Back to Spidey. He's tied up, upside down, twirling around with no way of escape. Smythe has gone back to his business, paying Spider-Man no mind. You know, instead of killing him when he had the chance. The four top gang leaders in New York are off doing Smythe's bidding themselves, instead of, you know, getting lackeys to do this for them. I don't think these are the four top gang leaders in New York at all. I think they've just told Smythe that when he happened upon them down the pub. Think about it, would the Kingpin really tolerate these buffoons as competition? No, he'd have had them killed years ago. Smythe walked into a bar, asked if anyone knew any gangland bosses, because, you know, his underworld contacts aren't great, and these four idiots all said, Yeah, it's us, and Smythe, not knowing any different, took them at their word. And I know he's stupider. 
Meanwhile, Spider-Man has had time to regain his strength, and he whips his leg with a snap, flexing the chain like a bullwhip, and as it cracks, it snaps, forcing Spider-Man to twist, turn, dodge and weave to avoid the Spider-Slayer as he uncoils himself from his bonds. The Slayer isn't that much of a threat, as Smythe made this one to be controlled by him, and he can't do that and tell the four-top gang leaders in New York what to rob and were. Okay, get this. Smythe has a phone in the Spider Slayer. A phone. It's nice that it's fully accessorised. Spider-Man uses the phone to call the cops and tell them all about Smythe's plan and they duly set about dismantling all the cameras. Okay, firstly, a phone in the Slayer. Is this just in case Smythe wanted to order a pizza after killing Spider-Man? Second, this is all dialogue. There is nothing in the art to support this silly plot development. Third, the cops take this call from an anonymous person. Spidey doesn't tell them who he is, which is confirmed later when the cops start shooting at him. And then, having taken this call from an anonymous person, they leap straight into action. Aren't they busy? There are four simultaneous robberies going down at the moment. Wouldn't that be preoccupying the police? The police manage to get all of the cameras down within seconds despite them being on rooftops all across New York, and the four top gang leaders in New York suddenly lose their signal. Completely baffled, the four top gang leaders in New York converge on the same New York street, despite the hits being located all over the city. Ramita handles the action well, and Spider-Man taking out the four top gang leaders in New York is well executed. It's nice to see Spider-Man get an easy win every now and again, and these losers are no match for him. Also, in a nice continuity nod, the cops shoot at Spider-Man again, as he's still wanted for questioning in the death of Captain Stacy. Spidey then heads back to Smythe's home. Instead of doing a runner, when he saw that his plan's gone tits up, Smythe waited for Spider-Man to come back. What a moron. Fortunately, our hero isn't that stupid, and when he was in the cockpit earlier, he screwed up the controls of the Slayer, meaning it will now not obey Smythe's commands. He leaves Smythe webbed up for the cops. Now, there's two ways this can go. Either Smythe will be let go because the cops have nothing on him, especially if Smythe makes it clear to Jonah that if he's going down, he'll take Jonah with them, or... The four top gang leaders in New York will rule on him so he gets sent to prison with them, in which case I don't reckon he's got long left to live. Spider-Man swings over to the bugle to drop by and see Jonah. Stan clearly likes writing Jonah, who is basking in the glory of his recent story about the police's invasion of privacy and wondering if he should run for Murr. He will, much later, run and become Murr, but that's very, very, very far down the line, like 30-odd years or so. Anyway, Spider-Man picks Jonah up by the lapels and lets him know that he knows that Jonah paid Smythe for his latest Spider-Slayer attack, and that, if this happens again, Spidey will stuff the remnants of the robot where the sun don't shine. Jonah breathes a sigh of relief that he has once again gotten away with attempted murder. Job done, Spider-Man swings back over to his civvies and plans on another night out with Gwen, when who should he see on the street below? Gwen and Flash, arm in arm. But before he can get too worked up about it, Flash is arrested by military police. Things will never be the same again, Spidey muses, as we learn that in the next issue we'll be going back to Vietnam. 
which will be a neat trick as we've not actually been to Vietnam. Spoilers, we don't actually go back to Vietnam. Oh dear. Another issue that really has no story to speak of, and what is there is badly thought out and mediocre. Stan is really past curring at this point. As ever, the characters and John Romita's artwork carry it through. Spencer Smythe will become even more unhinged and die of radiation poisoning in issue 189, as featured in the uninspired and lacklustre Marv Wolfman run, as covered on episode 81 of this show. Josh has never, to this date, been seen again. Issue 108 has another glorious John Romita cover. Spider-Man dives over a Chinese thug who is kidnapping Flash. Spidey, Gwen, Flash, what is the strange secret that threatens them all? Runs the cover copy. Let's find out, should we? The issue opens with a full-on and really rather excellent action scene. Spider-Man decides to follow the car that Flash was bundled into, and it's lucky he did, as almost immediately it's blocked in by a truck and another car. Suddenly smoke bombs are being tossed about like confetti, and Spidey has no idea who the bad guys are. He decides to stick with the idea of making sure Flash is okay, but is prevented from doing so by bad guys of oriental descent. Two in particular are given prominence. The Giant One, who is large, as you may expect from his name, and a smaller guy with a knife. I thought these two would end up being major villains of the piece, but they are largely forgotten about over the course of the story. Spider-Man webs everyone up, nationality be damned, and takes off with Flash Thompson. Alighting upon a nearby rooftop, Flash drops the bombshell. The MPs weren't arresting Flash. They were protecting him. A corker of an opening. Fast-paced and frenetic, and with no clearly defined enemies or allies, Spidey finds all quarters shooting at him, and elects to get the hell out of Dodge in his own inimitable way. Romita knocks this sequence out of the park. The twist that Flash was in protective custody is another winner, and leaves Spider-Man in quite the quandary. Flash tells Spidey the tale. On one of his tours in Nam, he was wounded and lost his patrol. In his delirium, he came across a sacred temple, one not referred to on any map, and only known about by natives. Inside, a wizened elderly shaman and a much younger and prettier girl nursed Flash back to health. When he was well, he left and returned to his platoon, but learned the next bombing run would be over the exact area of the temple. Guilt-ridden and sickened, Flash tried to warn the people who had saved his life, but it was too late. The temple and everyone inside was destroyed. Even worse, the local populace believed Flash had deliberately told his superiors about the temple, and they swore a death vow upon him. Despite this, Flash served the rest of his tour with no attempts on his life at all, and they waited until he was back on American soil to fulfil the vow. Armed with this knowledge, Spider-Man takes Flash back to the feds, and Flash clears the misunderstanding right up. Spider-Man leaves. He believes Flash's story, and that the followers of the temple will stop at nothing to kill Flash, but there's not a lot he can do about that. He heads back to his civvies. Now, if you recall, lovely listener, back in issue 105, Peter left his clothes webbed up after his date with Gwen. This was a tan suit, boots, and a striped shirt. The contents of his web pack have now changed to brown pants, a casual shirt and jacket. Given his webbing only lasts an hour, has the last few issues only taken that amount of time? Well, no, 
It can't have. Gwen has done another full day at ESU in between, and this is now the following evening after that date. All of the stories lead from one to the next, with no real space for untold adventures. So either Peter has been back, changed his clothes and webbed them up again and we didn't see it, or this is what is classically known as a mistake. Peter makes his way back to the apartment he shares with Harry Osborn, where Aunt May is waiting for him. In one of the most common, out-of-context panels on the internet, May finds a strange, sticky substance oozing from under Peter's bedroom door. Peter walks in and convinces her that it's a supplement for his master's thesis, but it is, in fact, a carton of web fluid that has been knocked over. As he's mopping up his sticky mess, Gwen arrives, all in a tizzy. She tells Peter Flash is in trouble. In as fine a piece of acting ever seen, Peter pretends he knows nothing about this, and Gwen babbles on about the MPs and Flash now being at the Federal Building. If this teenage girl has figured out where Flash is, how in the hell are the feds supposed to protect him from actual bad guys? Gwen asks Peter, why are they holding him? Why? Why? Settle down, Gwen. Why would you even think Peter has the faintest clue, given that he only supposedly knows what you just told him? Gwen drags Peter to the federal building to find out why Flash is being held, because that's how national security works. Inside, Peter spots the giant one and makes a feeble excuse to Gwen about having to call Jonah and climbs outside to plant a tracer on the giant one so he can be followed later. But wouldn't you know it, as Peter ascends the side of the building, Flash's room explodes. There's a great fight where an uncostumed Peter must fight the giant one under cover of darkness, which is another John Romita tour de force. Oddly, our hero never uses his spider sense to his advantage, but he does manage to plant the tracer. Constricted by his street clothes, though, and without his web shooters, Peter is roundly beaten. But the worst is yet to come. With smoke billowing around, Peter has no opportunity to escape and follow Flash's abductors, but must instead contend with a teary-eyed Gwen. He tries to bail, but Gwen forbids him from going. We'll ignore that Peter is the only eyewitness to a bombing in a federal building and wouldn't be allowed to leave anyway. Gwen says that if he loves her, he'll stay. But how can I do that, he wonders, without revealing, I'm Spider-Man. Actually, Peter, nobody suspects you of being Spider-Man, so this seems like a really weird thing to be worried about. Worry that your lame-ass excuse about the explosion blowing your shoes off is dumber than a bag of bricks. Worry that the feds are going to seriously want to question you about how you got into that room ahead of the explosion. Hell, worry that someone may have seen you crawl around the building without your mask on, but worrying that you may have to reveal your Spider-Man? That seems to be the least of your problems right now. There are other issues. Why did these Oriental fellows wait until Flash was back in America to execute him? How did they get in the room? One second the giant one is in reception, the next he's in the room where Flash is. Where are the guards? Hell, why are the feds even admitting to having Flash there? Surely they'd want to keep this a secret given how they screwed up his extraction earlier and needed a wanted masked vigilante to bail them out. There's an interesting story here about how Flash feels about inadvertently causing the death of innocent people, which could have led into a deeper exploration of Flash's character, but that's not on the cards. Taken in and of itself, the issue's fun. Its topsy-turvy structure is interesting, the character beats are affecting, especially the revelations about Flash, and the art is some of Ramita's best. The story isn't great, but it's all set up and no payoff. 
Stories like this rise and fall on how well they stick the landing. So on to issue 109. John Romita's cover is action-packed and eye-catching, as it always is. Spider-Man is thwacking the giant one over the back of the head, simultaneously smashing an axe he has in his hand. Doctor Strange has appeared and is waving his arms around like a demented sorcerer. Which he is, so that kind of works. Flash is tied up, hands behind his back, and looks like he was about to be beheaded before Spider-Man saved him. And there's another guy sat in front of them. There's plenty going on, and enough of it is suitably unexplained to entice any potential reader to pick up the book. Enter Doctor Strange. Fnar Fnar is a full-on Lee work with no inkers or embellishers, although Tony Martorello was doing backgrounds at this time, and he would sneak himself into the pages of the comic somewhere. In this case, he slides his name onto a billboard on page 4. Last issue, his name was on the spine of a book, and so on and so forth. Spotting Martorello's credits became a pastime of Spidey fans of the era. In all the commotion, Peter manages to get his shoes back, which is nice. Good shoes are expensive these days. Peter heads to the bathroom to clear his head and hits upon an idea. It's not a good idea, but it's an idea. He strips to his Spider-Man costume and stuffs his Peter Parker duds with webbing to simulate a body. He then takes to the window, letting everyone see him, and lets them assume Spider-Man has kidnapped Peter. Again. Stan mentions in the captions that this isn't the first time he's pulled off this stunt, but doesn't give an issue number or any clarification. Off the top of my head, he's done it three times. Amazing Spider-Man issue 46, issues 56, and more recently in issue 85. It never ends well, so one wonders why Peter keeps doing it. Spidey leaves the dummy and his clothes on a rooftop and goes in pursuit of Flash. Spider-Man crisscrosses New York trying to pick up his spider tracer, but is intercepted by Doctor Strange's astral form, who lures Spidey to his Sanctum Sanctorum. This scene is dumb. For one, Stan seems unsure if Spider-Man can see and hear Strange in the astral form, and he's scripting the scene. Spidey's dialogue acts like he can't see him, but the art has him look right at him numerous times. Then, although Spider-Man can clearly hear Strange, suddenly he acts like he can't, and Strange has to pull Spidey to his home instead of just saying, Hey, Spidey, come over to my place. I have information you might find useful. Once there, Spider-Man seems really confused that Strange knows he's there without looking at him, despite Strange himself taking Spider-Man to his own home. Of course he knows you're there. Strange uses some gobbledygook to show Spider-Man what's happening with Flash. Apparently, the aged priest is okay, but can only be awoken by the death of the one who put him in the deep sleep. Well, being as that wasn't Flash, we should be okay. The priest's daughter shows up, and it's Shah Shan, who will become a minor recurring character. She can't just tell the men Flash didn't kill the priest, because it is not my place to dispute the words of those who serve my father. But if she also serves her father, and she knows Flash didn't do it, isn't that the end of everybody's problems? Well, no, because the priest sleeps the endless sleep, presumably death, but the death of Flash can mystically renew him. So he's not dead then? For reasons, Strange decides to join Spider-Man in helping Flash, 
Oh, and Shashan tries to stab Flash, even though she knows he's innocent, because... Oh, I don't fucking know. Anyway, Flash can only die at the appointed hour, which is convenient because it gives Spider-Man and Doctor Strange time to get there. Elsewhere, Gwen has gone to Peter's apartment to see if he's back. Only Harry and May are there, and when May attempts to coddle Peter, Gwen snaps and tells her to back off, lady. Peter's a man, damn it, and she needs to start treating him as such. May, surprisingly, agrees. This was a good scene in an issue of Drek. Gwen has been pushing Peter to be more proactive, ironically, believing his disappearance is a cowardice. This never made a lot of sense to me, as a lot of the time he buggers off to take photos, which is A, arguably dangerous, and B, how he makes his money. Nevertheless, this bodes a new direction for May and for Peter. For some reason, Harry just hovers around in the background not wanting to get involved. Back at the appointed hour, there's a fight. Doctor Strange does a pretty light show and the aged priest is awoken. Flash has no blood on his hands, he's no reason to mope any longer, and all this interesting character development is undone. Oh, and Shashan wasn't trying to kill him, she was only cutting his bonds by holding a dagger above his head as if to plunge it into his chest. Or something. Once back amongst the living, the priest tells everyone Flash is innocent. Meh. John Romita's art is full of shadows, portents and big bold brush strokes and Fu Manchu style intrigue. Sadly, it can't save this drivel. It was a story that had a lot of potential. Flash was in the war but inadvertently caused the death of innocence. How did this affect him? How did it change him as a man? What do his experiences mean to him? Will he struggle back in Civvy Street? How will it affect his relationship with his friends? This was really good character growth for Flash. All ignore once we brought Doctor Strange into it and turned it into a boring mystic fest that made no fucking sense. If the bombing decimated the temple, how did Shashan survive? If the priest put himself into a mystical coma to survive, why did he leave his daughter to die? Could he not have put her in the coma as well? Why did his followers drag his body all the way to America when they could have snatched Flash when he was back in Nam? Why the hell does a peaceful man of the cloth have a ritual that means someone has to die in order to resurrect him? Did the authorities at customs not think it weird that these guys were just carrying a corpse into the country? There have been issues of Amazing before this that I thought were very good, but this is the first time I've checked out in the middle of a story. This was just so boring. I hate Spider-Man being involved in Doctor Strange stories anyway, but this is the worst. What attracted Strange to this? How did he become involved? The priest's followers weren't using any mystic forces before this, so what tipped Strange off? His involvement means Spider-Man is largely irrelevant to the conclusion, only being required to punch some people. Basically, the issue is a pointless waste of the time and talent of everyone involved, including me. Flash, completely back to normal, can only think about how this will be a great story for groovy Gwendy, meaning we close with Peter sat on a chimney stack, wondering how he can compete with Flash. Flash really needs to let this go. Gwen told him last issue she's not interested in him. He's in danger of becoming a stalker. And so, the end. But the moment has been prepared for. 
Issue 110 of The Amazing Spider-Man, cover dated July 1972, was the last regular issue of Spider-Man to be scripted by Stan Lee. It was the end of an era. The birth of the Gibbon, with a cover by John Romita, features Spider-Man being hurled off a rooftop by a... monkey? It's very strange. The issue picks up exactly where we left off, with Spider-Man still on the rooftop, still bemoaning his lot. His anger is such that not only does he punch a nearby chimney stack, with predictable repercussions for the well-being of his hand, he also throws his portable camera off the roof when he realises he forgot to take any pictures. Before it can shatter into a thousand pieces upon the floor, a hand shoots out and catches it. And a tall, agile figure swings and bounds up to Spidey, returning the camera with a decent somersault and dismount. The man, who is remarkably hurry, with ape-like features, tells Spider-Man he is Martin Blank, and fears he has it far worse than Spidey. With a farewell, Martin leaves, and we learn that he's living in a flophouse following the recent quitting of his job. He was hired as a circus performer, but instead was shafted and given a monkey costume due to rivalry with the circus's main acrobatic troupe, the Zatellis. All his life, Martin, an orphan, has been laughed at, and the crowd baying at him was too much. He quit and headed for New York. It seems a bit daft to me, as at least it was a steady gig, a chance to travel and a decent salary, but Martin's got to Martin, I guess. Martin isn't the most compelling character ever created, but Stan does a decent job of making us feel sorry for the guy. Speaking of people we feel sorry for, Peter Parker returns to his apartment, looking a tad worse for wear. His clothes are dirty, which will happen if you keep leaving them on rooftops, and his hair unkempt. He probably smells a bit. Gwen and May are still waiting for him, but there's no real follow-up on him being kidnapped by Spider-Man. Instead, the day's events catch up with him, understandable as he hasn't had a break in four issues, and he passes out. May, seemingly saddened after her clash with Gwen, simply leaves. With Peter asleep, Gwen also leaves with the arriving Flash Thompson and Harry Osborn. Typically, Peter wakes up to see them leave and overhears a conversation that sounds like Flash hitting on Gwen, but is, in fact, the end of a further discussion where Gwen once again makes her feelings for Peter clear. Exhausted, Peter passes out. His dreams are fitful and disturbing. He fears May curs too much and Gwen not enough, and Flash is waiting in the wings to split them up. Twelve hours later, he awakens and tries to call May. He doesn't call Gwen. Gee, I wonder why Flash thinks he has an in. At least he's around. Spider-Man webs over to May's but is intercepted by Martin, now calling himself the Gibbon, who wants to be Spidey's sidekick. Spider-Man laughs in Martin's face. The wrong thing to do with poor Martin, and fisticuffs ensue. Stan does a pretty good job here. This is a proper fight of misunderstanding rather than the tedious ones that normally occur between heroes. Neither Spider-Man nor Martin know what's going on in the other's life, so nothing Spider-Man says is actually insulting Martin, but it's easy to see how Martin, in his depressed state, could feel it came off that way. It's also not much of a fight, Martin being no match for Spider-Man, who swings off, for he has other things on his mind. Martin is unaware that dispassionate eyes are watching, with designs on him for their own nefarious ends. <laughs> and so, Stan's ten-year run as the main man ended. Not with a bang, but a muted whisper. 
There have been many highs and lows in this 10-year period, but rarely was the strip anything less than engaging. There was a slump after co-creator and arguably Spider-Man's real father, Steve Ditko, left, with neither Lee nor any of his future collaborators really wishing to rock the boat too much. Ironically, Spider-Man became Marvel's best-selling title after Ditko left, so the idea of Peter in college balancing his checkbook, job, school life and social circle alongside his part-time gig as a superhero was the de facto scenario in people's minds. The characters created after Ditko left are perhaps more memorable than the stories. Although Gwen, Harry and Murray Jane all have their roots in the early days, it took John Romita to make them the iconic characters they became. It's telling that the character development slowed to a crawl under Stan and later artists, but these became the archetypes for future Spider-Man projects away from the comics, and the feel of these issues has still been chased today. There are more memorable stories in the Ditko era than subsequently, with even the stories that are revered, the unmasking of the Green Goblin, Spider-Man No More and the death of George Stacy, having long stretches of nothing in between them. It's not unfair to say Stan checked out long before he quit. When he had something to say or got some fire in his belly, Stan was still capable of delivering. Witness the drugs issues, the emphasis on social ills, the introduction of new characters with agendas like Hobie Brown, Robbie and Randy Robertson and Josh, the Sam Bullitt stories and the Kingpin. Stan always seemed to like writing Jonah and started to make him a lot more sympathetic than he'd been under Ditko, where he was often a borderline psychopath, a bully or a figure of fun. However, it's fair to say that there was a lot more wheel spinning in the late 60s than there was when Ditko was the plotter. That level of balls-out creativity just wasn't there anymore. Return bouts with gimmicky villains, characters like the Lizard, Mysterio and Craven, who had no real need to return, offered little that was new. New wrinkles were found with Doctor Octopus and the Vulture, and any time the strip dipped its toes back into crime noir, such as the Silvermane issues or the Kingpin stories, Stan seemed to find his feet again. But there were more dumb issues than ever before. Pointless team-ups and fights with Medusa, Quicksilver and Black Widow existed solely to fill out 22 pages in between ads. Faux cliffhangers, where Peter seemed in danger of having his secret revealed, became the norm, usually wrapped up with a stupid deus ex machina before the final page of the next issue. The need to keep things the same meant the same beats were played out over and over, and Stan really seemed to be fighting what the strip was clearly demanding. Take the next during step. There are arguments, I've made them myself, that Spider-Man works best in high school. I still think that, but you can't do what Marvel was doing, change, adapt and evolve, and then stop doing that. The audience won't let you. No one was crying out for Superman or Batman to change, because they never had, and therefore the audience had no expectations of it ever happening. But Spider-Man was different. He was 15 when the strip started, and he was pushing 20 when Stan left. Sure, he only aged five years for our ten, but he was ageing. It's not unreasonable, therefore, for the audience to expect that to continue. The creators opened the door. They just didn't have the guts to go through it. Who knows if Stan would have found his nerve had he stuck around. Steve Ditko had left under a cloud of misunderstanding, and we can only imagine where Ditko would have taken the strip had he continued. 
It would have been completely different and maybe not as successful. Who can say? What we can say is that Stan needed Steve, just like he needed Jack Kirby. He was never as good without them, nor they him. Kirby wanted to do Ragnarok with Thor, but Stan was against the idea. Jack took those concepts to DC and made the new gods, but this shows that Stan was slamming the brakes on, fearing the very thing that had made Marvel stand out in the first place. Change. Had Stan stayed, would he have done what the strip demanded? Would Gwen have found out and married Peter? Or would Stan have split them up? These issues make it clear that marriage was on the cards. And with that kind of comfortable life, Peter would have given up being Spider-Man. I don't think Peter would carry on after marriage, and maybe that would have been a good end point. Failing that, I'll stick with thinking that Amazing Spider-Man 99 is where Stan should have called it a day, rather than the lacklustre issues that followed. It does seem odd that Stan would choose to walk away without providing any closure at all. Even Ditko's run ends after a fashion. Stan just up and quits, one issue into a new storyline with Nuria goodbye. It would take other writers to make that change, to truly take the strip in a during a new direction, to make a bold statement. It's too late now to say if that bold statement was the right one. It happened. It is what it is. The 60s are Spider-Man's best decade, without exception. Other creators would come along and do interesting stories, but they are all living in the shadow of what was done by Stan Lee, Steve Ditko and John Romita. But in my heart of hearts, despite the many enjoyable issues, despite the canny characters, the sultry Mary Jane Watson, gorgeous Gwendolyn and the troubled Harry Osborn, despite the peaks and valleys, the good, the bad and the stupid, despite the increased popularity of the character, I know that it was never as good as it was for those first 38 issues and two annuals. Spider-Man had two fathers, created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Both men left a legacy. And as long as comics exist, as long as there's a kid out there who needs a character to relate to, someone who's not always likeable, someone who makes mistakes, someone who's a little offbeat, a little anti-authority, a little bit of a maverick, there'll be a need for Peter Parker. After all, He's the hero that could be you. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, there goes the Spider-Man. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Wealth and fame, he's ignored. Action is his reward to him. Life is a great big hang-up. Wherever there's a hang-up, you'll find a Spider-Man. Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. 
I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. The new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detective's greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The Saga of Ra's al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman vs. the Man-Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface 3 and the Ventriloquist. Plus more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novick. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No, what? Just messing with you. Wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Okay, let's have a delve into the email sack. See what's in there today. Our first email tonight is from Nathaniel Wayne. Hello, Nathaniel. It's been a while. Hey there, Andy. I'm so far behind on podcasts, it's not even funny. That explains why it's been a while then. But I gave a listen to your episode on the first series of Torchwood. But if it's Doctor Who related, then you know I'm going to have thoughts to share. Broadly speaking, I didn't really care for Torchwood all that much. I did the two proper series in Children of Earth, easily the best Torchwood product by a country mile, which I did a review on last year over on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. Bet you've missed these masterful plugs. But I still haven't gotten around to Miracle Day. My issues are similar to yours. The writers forgetting that Jack was a fun character. The sense of trying to be adult in the most sophomoric way possible. Day one almost made me bail on the show right then and there. Characters that are difficult to care about because they are also awful. And a wildly inconsistent tone from episode to episode. Early on, it was small worlds that kept me going. And I can say that across those whole two first series, there are bright spots. But it's just way too inconsistent on the whole for me to ever recommend as a product. I haven't got round to series two yet. It's all on BBC iPlayer and I meant to, to binge watch all of them. But I've started rewatching Chuck, which is much more fun. <laughs> and you'll hear all about that in a couple of episodes. There's a tease for you. Quick note, Abaddon, emphasis on the last syllable, Abaddon, still Abaddon, isn't a horrible pun you took it as. It's actually a biblical reference from the book of Revelation. Actually, I should have spotted that. It's been used in lots of comics and stuff. Oh, and I should have known it from the Bible, yeah. And I don't mean to be sounding like I'm picking on accents, but you drove me nuts with your pronunciation of Ianto. The I has a soft E sound, and all put together, it's close to sounding like Yanto. See, the thing with that is they pronounce it differently in the show itself. And I tried to pronounce it the way that Gareth David Lloyd and Gwen Cooper, not Gwen Cooper, I have completely blanked on the actress's name, Eve Miles did, because they genuinely are Welsh. So I thought they would pronounce it the, the most accurately, and that's what I tried to go for. But obviously I failed miserably. Okay, I think I'm done. Hope you're doing well, and keep doing what you do. Geekly yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you, Nathaniel. It's always nice to hear from you. Uh, even if you are horribly behind on your podcast. It's not like these are long, dude. They're quite short. I try to keep them to under an hour, which I think is, um, is the perfect length for shows such as this one. Our next email is from Dave McElvany. Hello, Dave. The Palace of Glittering Delights, The Empire Strikes Back, The Big 4-0. Greetings, Andrew. Greetings, Dave. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode, and I absolutely agree that Empire is the best Star Wars movie ever. 
even though it's not my favourite Star Wars movie, which I'll explain in a moment. Well, let's see. I always like to do the balance between favourite and best. Um, I happen to think Empire is the best and it's my favourite, but that's not always the case. I grant you that. I loved hearing the enthusiasm and love you have for it, even 40 years after you first saw it. To me, there's nothing like hearing someone talk enthusiastically about something they love. Maybe YouTube should take a page from that book, Dave. That said, if you will indulge me, even though Empire is objectively a better movie, my favourite in the series is the first one, which I will always call Star Wars. Same as me. It is not A New Hope. People didn't queue up to see a film called A New Hope. They queued up to see a film called Star Wars. Since that's what it was called when I first saw it in 1977. I'm older than you are, so I didn't see this as a child, but as a university student. But that did not diminish my joy in it. I can remember the theatre, now gone, at which I saw it. I can even tell you where I was sitting. From the first moments of the movie, particularly when the looming Star Destroyer came slowly into view from the screen in pursuit of the rebel ship, I was absolutely enthralled and remained in that state through the ceremony in which Luke and Han, but not Chewbacca, got their medals from Princess Leia. I was so amazed by the movie that I went back to that theatre for the next two days in a row to watch it again and again. By the end of the weekend, I think I had most of the dialogue memorised. Hearing you talk about your love of Empire and your Star Wars fandom overall brought me such happy memories and I am deeply indebted to you. Thank you. Live long and prosper because we can be fans of more than one thing. Dave McKelvin. Well, thank you, Dave. I received a lot of good feedback on the Empire episode about how enthusiastic it was. It was something that I banged out in a weekend. This episode should have come out last week, but then I realised it was Empire's 40th anniversary and felt the need to do something for it. So I'm glad that people like something that was relatively off the cuff. And that about wraps it up for this time. But next time, I will be concluding my look at Stanley's run on Spider-Man with an epilogue that looks at his other works on the character since leaving the book in 1971. If you have anything to say about these issues, or this entire project of looking at Stan's run on the book, feel free to email on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and engage in the conversation. I'll see you next time for the epilogue to Stan Lee's run on Spider-Man. Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you soon. Yeah.